So what does Judaism say about end-of-life care? Firstly, Judaism speaks about the great importance, the great mitzvah of saving a life. As we mentioned in last week's class, we should be prepared to transgress almost any mitzvah to save a life. And we definitely, if we are prepared to transgress, we mentioned the exceptions last week, but we are prepared to transgress almost any mitzvah to save a life. So we definitely must take all medical steps necessary to save a life of somebody in danger or somebody whose life is threatened. Now, historically, that was pretty straightforward. Today, however, modern medicine has made this a little bit more complicated. Thanks to modern medicine uh, inventions such as ventilators, feeding tubes, people can often today be kept alive artificially or through medical means much longer than they would have been able to live on their own. And these treatments have really raised, and other treatments have raised a host of questions about whether we should be keeping people alive while they are in pain or if they no longer wish to live. So more, so more recently, there's been a movement called the Right to Die movement that has pushed for the right for doctors to prescribe, um, to prescribe something to patients that, to take to end their lives, essentially a suicide pill. Now, since 2016, California has been a right to die state where terminally ill patients under certain conditions can ask a doctor to prescribe them a pill that will allow them to take their own life. Um, It was somewhat, it was disputed in the courts, but today it is legal in California and a host of other states. Another recent development, somewhat recent development, in end-of-life care is hospice treatment. So today, patients that are terminally ill are given what's called hospice treatment, where the goal is not to heal the people, but to simply maximize their comfort, to make them die in as comfortable a way as possible, with as little pain as possible. And hospice in the last 20 years or so has become so popular that today about half of all people who die in the United States die in hospice. So today we're going to deal with the question of What does Judaism say about end-of-life care, about hospice care, and about end-of-life treatment? Are there any questions from those on Zoom before we go further? No, Rabbi, I just wanted to mention that I do volunteer work at a hospice. It's a great thing to volunteer at hospice. Thank you for sharing that. And um, this is relevant. I should mention that this topic is relevant really to all of us in different ways. Um, Many of us have had, if not all of us, have had loved ones who have gone through the end of life um, and have died in a gradual um, process. And uh, therefore, we had to make end of life care decisions for them. Um, Many of us, even if we have not yet had relatives, chances are we probably will, almost certainly will have relatives, close ones that will Uh, we will have to make end-of-life decisions. And ultimately, chances are that each one of us will have to make these own decisions ourselves. So this is all very relevant. It's particularly relevant today um, 
and we'll soon speak of exactly why um, in the uh, today when we have the COVID-19 um, crisis and um, people are um, in hospitals and dying in larger numbers and um, therefore it is it has become even more relevant today. Now, before discussing the Jewish view on the end of life care, it's important that we first talk about the underlying values in medical ethics. For most of history, the basic ethic of medicine was the Hippocratic Oath, which was to do no harm. First, do no harm. And the value is that doctors, medical care workers, do everything they can to save lives, help patients recover from any illness, and if unable to or while they are sick, to do their best to alleviate their pain. And that is, has always been the tradition of medicine. First and foremost, the role of the doctor and medical workers was to save lives. And secondly, to help patients recover. And finally, while they are sick, to alleviate their pain. However, in the last 40, 50 years in the United States, in Europe, and much of the world, um, there's been a rise in what's called Kantian libertarian philosophy. And as a result, the medical community has gradually moved away from the Hippocratic Oath value or the do no harm value to a value built around what's called patient autonomy. Today in the United States, the number one value in medical care, and this is a somewhat recent development, last 30 to 40 years, the number one value, and it happened gradually, didn't happen suddenly, but today the number one value of, in medical care that trumps all other values is personal autonomy, patient autonomy. Let the patient do whatever the patient wants you to do. And this has given rise to the palliative care and hospice care movements that allow patients to choose comfort over treatment, do what patients want, not don't just try to heal them. Um, this has also given rise to the right to die movements, which at their core are really libertarian movements to allow people to the freedom to do whatever they want, including the freedom to, to take their own life. It has also given rise to a movement calling for um, power of attorney to choose individuals that will make decisions for you if, as a patient, you are incapacitated, as well as people putting advanced directives such as do not resuscitate, do not intubate, and other advanced directives, or some more detailed advanced directives to let medical care staff know in advance what the patient's wishes will be. Now that has been, that, that today is the underlying value in modern medicine. However, Judaism does not believe in the value of personal autonomy when it comes to medicine. And this is very important and will be important to understanding the rest of our talk today. We believe that, as we mentioned two weeks ago when speaking about abortion, that we believe that a person does not own their own body. Your body does not belong to you. Your body is given to you on loan by God. So our body is given to us on loan. And as anything else that is lent to us, we must return it in the best possible condition. 
So we do not have a right to harm our body in any way. We furthermore do not have a right to take our own life. Um, with some very, there may be some rare exceptions in Judaism when we do, but generally we do not have a right to take our own life. And we also do not have a right to choose what treatment we want. We have to choose what treatment is right or what treatment we believe that God wants. So while we will see that there is times in Judaism where a patient's wishes are relevant and we will ask the patient what they want, but in Jewish values, a patient's wishes are secondary to the medical ethics of saving lives and healing. We do not own our body. It is not ultimately the patient's choice whether to live or die or how long to live and how to die. We do not have that autonomy and therefore there will be times uh, and therefore generally we are we must follow a what we could call objective ethic that would be the same for all people there will be times when either the torah view or the medical view is not clear about the best way forward and would be there would be multiple options and then we would of course follow the patient's wishes but otherwise and Judaism would tell us that we must always do the right thing ethically, regardless of what we actually want. Regardless of what we are comfortable with, we should do the right thing. Uh, now today, people often look at, the when looking at how to treat end-of-life care, people often look at the value of life. Is their life in their current state worth living? Often people say, I don't want to live in pain, or I don't want to live incapacitated, perhaps as a vegetable, or with limited function. And that's a common way we look at life today, we look at the quality of life. Is this life worth living? Is this life worth preserving? Is it worth keeping this person alive? However, in Judaism, we believe that life is not about quality of life. The value of life is much greater than the actual experience that a person has. A person's life is of infinite value. It doesn't depend what you're experiencing. A life is of ultimate value. And it's wrong to believe that some lives are worth living and some lives are not. The Mishnah tells us that somebody who saves a life is like they save the entire world. And that is, even if you save only a few minutes of life, we know that keeping Shabbat is one of the most important commandments in Judaism, and we would do anything um, to keep Shabbat um, our grandparents often had great sacrifices to keep Shabbat, um, including losing jobs and um, financial sacrifices to keep Shabbat. And uh, we would really give up anything to um, any um, money in the world not to desecrate the Shabbat. However, to save a life, we would desecrate the Shabbat because saving a life comes before almost any of the commandments, as we mentioned earlier. The Mishnah tells us that if a building falls down on Shabbat, 
We must dig through the rubble if we suspect that people might be trapped inside in order to save their life. If we find someone, even and they are alive, they're still breathing, even if their head is crushed, and so they cannot survive long term, they can at most survive for a few hours, a few days, we must still dig them out of the rubble on Shabbat in order to, and do everything it takes to preserve their life, even if we are just preserving their life for a few minutes. So we are prepared to desecrate the Shabbat to save a life, not only to save a life of a young person, not only to save a life of someone that can live for years, but even to save someone's life, to extend someone's life for just a few, a few minutes. Preserving a life, in other words, for any amount of time, regardless of the state of the individual, is a value in Judaism. Every life is of infinite value, no matter how many years, months, days, or hours they have left to live, no matter what level of functionality they have, whether they are awake, whether they are not awake, whether they are responsive, whether they are not responsive. Now, how to define whether somebody is alive and what exactly is the moment of death is a complex ethical question and beyond the scope of our class today. And God willing, we will do a class on, um, I will do a class on defining the moment of death and are people in certain states whose organs may still be functioning, are they really technically alive? But if someone, given assuming that someone is alive, um, then as no matter what their quality of life or functionality, their life is of infinite value. And that's because life does not need to be for a purpose. Life is an end in itself. Life is a value of its own. Yes, there may be hidden purpose, um, but life is a, that we sometimes don't know. Um, and sometimes people don't think their, their life has value and it really does. But ultimately, life is... Um, Ultimately, life is not for a purpose. Life is an end in itself. Some of you may recall we had a um, fellow in this community um, whose name was Eric. He moved out of town a few years ago. Um, and he spoke one year in our shul on Yom Kippur. And uh, he told of how his father, he had not been very involved in Jewish life. And um, he had, his father had um, been one of those people who never wanted to suffer um, and never wanted to live a life incapacitated, and had always um, given advance directive that if anything happens, they should not treat. Um, regardless, um, it's not always do we have a choice of how to live. And um, his father did get sick at the end of his life and went through suffering. And um, some people, even if they want to die, God ultimately chooses when people die and do not die. And his father went through a few months where he was still alive, um, even without um, needing resuscitation or any other major treatments, um, but going through suffering and gravely incapacitated. And um, as he was watching his father suffer, and he had never wanted to suffer, um, and um, this is before the uh, right to die uh, laws, uh, he, it dawned upon him that maybe there is something more to life than just the experience in life. And as a result, because of that, he started began to search 
Um, what more is there to life? There must be something more spiritual, something more meaningful to life than just life itself, uh, than just the experience in life. And as a result, he turned to Judaism and he started coming to Shul and got very involved in our community. Then he's still involved now where he's moved to. He's still involved, very involved in Judaism as a result. And he said he said that all he doesn't know why his father suffered and his father had never wanted to suffer and it's hard to find a purpose in suffering but his father's suffering did bring him to recognize a deeper purpose in life beyond the experience in life so we definitely believe that life itself is an end in, in its own is a value of its own beyond the particular experience that we may have or any other value that we may gain out of it now, any questions though before, from our, my, our Zoom participants before we go further? You have to unmute yourself. Yeah, Rabbi, uh, I'm wondering about um, if someone is n near death and the only possibility of recovering is some experimental drug or technique or procedure. Um, what is the Jewish thought on that? That's a very good question. Um, I think the topic of experimental drugs and procedures really should be for another class, um, another time. It's beyond the scope of our class today. Um, it's a very important question. Um, just to address it very briefly, um, while we must do everything to preserve a life, um, Halacha Jewish law tells us we must only do things that are known to preserve life. Something that is not known to preserve life, that is not established as an accepted medical procedure, um, uh, it, as something that is not an established medical procedure, we are not required um, to use to preserve, um, to preserve a life. Um, now, the details of that and how to establish what is proven and what is not and what Jewish law would say on that is really a subject of another class. Elise? Yeah. So you said that we don't choose our treatment. We have to do what God wants. Yes. How do you know what God wants? That's a very good question. We believe that God instructed us what he wants through his Torah, through his instructions, and through the laws of halacha, of Jewish law. Um, and we're going to soon talk about what halacha, what Jewish law tells us we're supposed to be doing. So we do believe we know what God wants. Um, now, not always will halacha give us a very exact answer. There may be a lot of ambiguity um, within halachas to the particular treatment in a specific situation. Um, as we'll see that in a moment, there's some complexity. Um, so, and there may be times that we can choose, we have the option of choosing which way we want to go, what would be the right treatment for us. Um, but we must still t follow the Jewish values um, as taught to us through the Torah. So one of the greatest challenges in attempting to preserve a life at all costs is when someone is suffering unbearable pain. And often people prefer not to live in great suffering. And um, it's very common. People who are suffering, people feeling pain, will often say, I prefer to end my life or not to live rather than experience this pain. Now, I should mention, and this is very important, that 
when people often give advanced directives, um, they don't want, especially when people say they don't want to live in an incapacitated way, um, studies have shown repeatedly that people whom, while young and healthy, say, I would never want to live in an incapacitated way, later when they are incapacitated, they more often than not change their minds and say, you know, I would want to live in an incapacitated way. I'm actually want to continue living in my current state. It's less common for people in grave pain, um, but it can also be true. But even so, it's very hard. People, If people are um, in great suffering, it's very hard to... Um, people do not want to live with great suffering, suffering. And by prolonging their life, we are prolonging their suffering. And in Judaism, um, a, it is a value to help people um, avoid suffering, um, to be kind to people, to not allow others to suffer and reduce suffering. And so we recognize this concern, and therefore we will not always require us to prolong a life of somebody who is suffering. Um, the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, tells us that if someone is terminally ill and dying, we may not do anything that will hasten their death. We may not take do any testing, that will hasten their death. Um, we will, may not do um, any procedures or anything to them, even if touching them will hasten their death in any way. We may not do anything that will hasten their death. However, if there is something external that is preventing them from dying, that thing may be removed. Now, to be clear... When we say something that is preventing them from dying may be removed, we are referring to something that is preventing them from dying from the disease they are currently dying from. So it does not mean removing basic needs such as oxygen, hydration, food keeping them alive. Um, it also doesn't mean stopping treatments of things that are not killing them. For example... If someone were to be dying, God forbid, from cancer, um, and they also suffer from kidney failure, and um, if we stop dialysis, assuming they're still able to handle dialysis in their current state, um, if we stop dialysis, they would die from the kidney failure before the cancer kills them. We, cannot, we must continue treating the, di treating, um, the kidney failure, um, since the kidney failure is not what they're about to die from, um, although we would not necessarily have to continue trying to treat the cancer, treat the chemo in, uh, with chemo um, if, they, um, if they are suffering greatly and, will, and are terminally ill and will likely die soon regardless. Now, the exact parameters um, of when we can limit treatment are somewhat complicated. It should be clear that we can only limit treatment to a patient if a patient is terminally ill, meaning they are almost certainly going to die, and they are almost certainly going to die fairly soon. Fairly soon in that we don't expect them to get up from their bed or their um, current state. Uh, we don't expect them to become mobile, um, and they will die within... The next couple, usually in the next couple days or maybe the next couple weeks. Um, also, we would only limit treatment if either they are currently in great pain or the treatment and prolonging their life will only prolong that pain and the treat or the treatment itself will cause them great pain. Um, and so, but even then, 
It's only the treatment that we would not give them. However, other basics we would give them. So somebody, for example, who is terminally ill and in great pain and treatment would cause great pain, um, we may not have to treat them um, by intubating them um, if they currently cannot breathe on their own, but we still would have to provide oxygen through a mask. And if they are intubated already, where providing oxygen does not increase their pain whatsoever, we would not be allowed to stop the oxygen. Now, somebody who's old, somebody who's senile, somebody who's perhaps in a coma and not responsive, must still be fully treated, even if they are close to death. And for that matter, somebody who has a somewhat decent chance of surviving, they must be treated, even if the treatment is very painful. Now, if the patient refuses to accept treatment, um, do we have to force them? Um, legally, we would not be able to force them in this country regardless. Um, it's whether we should ethically is something that is debated by halachic experts. And most think that we should not force them, but we should try to do everything we can to try to encourage them to receive the treatment. Now, when choosing to limit treatment of somebody who is terminally ill and in great pain, we cannot take into account the costs whatsoever. Costs should never be taken into account when a life is in danger. Remember that we would save a life at any cost. And the emotional toll on the family also cannot be taken into account. Sometimes it can be very difficult for the family to care for a loved one. Um, sometimes it's for many years who is um, at the end of life, uh, who needs end of life care or who is sick. And, uh, but that emotional toll should not be factored in. While the emotional toll should be addressed perhaps separately, it should not be factored in in choosing whether to limit treatment or not. Now, there is a lot of complexity in halacha, in Jewish law, um, in an instance where someone is terminally ill and in pain or a treatment that may cause pain, there is some complexity in halacha and there is also some debate among halachic experts today um, as to exactly which treatments should be done and which treatments should not be done. And because of the complexity and because no two medical situations are alike, um, the, someone who is in such a situation or has a loved one in, um, at the end of life stage where they are considering limiting care to their loved one, they must consult with a rabbi, with someone who has expertise. Um, usually if, I, if I'm called about such a question, I don't have the expertise to respond um, to such a question. Uh, I, I like to say I'm a GP, general practitioner rabbi, a community rabbi. Um, but there are a number of rabbis, both here in Los Angeles and around the world, that do have expertise in the field, whom I would then consult with or tell the family member to consult with um, in, order to in order to know what to do, what the best approach in the particular situation may be. Um, so therefore, halachic experts should always be consulted in such a scenario. But it is important to remember that we do value life regardless of 
the current state of the individual, um, regardless of how long we can prolong life for. We do believe that life is of ultimate value, yet we recognize that we do have to balance that with the pain and the costs, uh, the pain of the individual, both physical and emotional pain of the individual who is suffering. And um, in certain instances where they are terminally ill, what we call in halacha chaye sha'a, um, we're only, go only going to keep them alive temporarily in great pain. We do allow for um, limiting treatment. Again, if ever considering that, one would have to consult an expert, halachic expert regarding the specific details of that situation. Any questions before we go further? Rabbi, I have a question. My father, in the last years of his life, in his uh, late 80s, um, had uh, medical problems. Eventually, though his practitioner, his uh, doctor, said he wasn't a good candidate for, uh, for the surgery, eventually they said, okay, we want you to get uh, the surgery. And before he went into surgery, he said to the family that he does not want to survive on uh, being intubated. And he went through the surgery, was fully intubated. When he came out, uh, the family was called together two or three days later, and we had uh, adhered to his wishes and took the intubation out. And he passed within 20 minutes. And as far as Jewish law is concerned, did we take a misstep? So I've mentioned in similar classes where we discussed ethics um, that the goal of these classes is not to go over past deeds um, because everyone does what, based, what they know, knew best at the time and we trust the decision was made um, with the best interests in mind and t attempting to do the right thing. So our goal is not to go back to past things that we have done but rather to inform for future um, and to uh, so that we know what to do in future. So um, I wouldn't want to comment on past things that you've done. However, as you can see, generally, um, we would not, even if somebody, halachically, even if somebody requests um, to not live in a certain manner, um, we generally would not terminate their um, the treatment um, unless they are terminally ill and they're in great pain, then in some situations we may. Um, again, it's complicated. Um, but generally, we do believe that we should preserve life um, at almost all costs. Um, and we would not necessarily follow the wishes of the patients. That is against the current law. So, um, the federal law in the United States, um, based on Supreme Court rulings, um, do recognize patient autonomy as being the ultimate decider in how to treat a patient. Um, and so, um, in theory, it would be illegal, but um, Toro tells us that we do the right thing rather than following the patient's wishes. Rabbi, is yes. there a definite? Yeah, is there a definition of being incapacitated? How do you determine that? Incapacitated to be able to make one's own decisions. Yeah, or express those decisions. Yeah, that is a very good question. Um, it's something that's very hard to determine, um, and I don't know offhand how to determine whether someone is incap incapacitated or not. Again, in Jewish law, while for many medical treatments we would 
ask the individual, uh, but ultimately the values of life trump personal autonomy. Thank you. So we know, yes. So, um, what's the point of having a medical directive for yourself? Very good question. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Okay. So we mentioned earlier that most terminally ill patients get hospice treatment before they die. Uh, about half of all people in the United States um, who die, die in hospice. Now, it's important to note that there are two types of treatment, hospice and palliative care. And the basic difference usually given um, for the two is that palliative care is essentially a more wholesome treatment where we continue to treat the patient while emphasizing comfort and quality of life. So we're not only trying to treat the patient, we're also trying to improve their comfort and quality of life. Um, advocates of palliative care, um, and there's a great palliative care program um, here in the South Bay run by Providence, um, Dr. Kamatsu, um, advocates for palliative care um, believe that it is not only for terminally ill patients, but it is the best way to treat someone because in addition to just looking at the specific treatment, by making someone more comfortable and more happy with their lives in general, they have a better chance of um, improvement. And so it's really a better way to treat people. Hospice, on the other hand, only focuses on comfort. In other words, once a person is in hospice, they no longer are treated for whatever um, diseases they may have, whatever illnesses they may have. There is no longer any treatment. There is only comfort care. In other words, that we only attempt to um, help the person be more comfortable, relieve their pain, relieve any other discomforts, but we don't attempt to make the person better. Um, now, currently, Medicare, and for that matter, most insurances will pay for hospice. In other words, once somebody who's terminally ill has decided they no longer want to wish to pursue treatment, they will pay for the costs of comfort care. Um, but once someone is on hospice, they will not pay for um, the wholesome treatment or the palliative care. They will not pay for um, to treat the patient to make them better. Um, so, for example, somebody who is, um, ha is in advanced stages of cancer, um, even if they do have a prognosis that gives them some chance of survival if they were to continue cancer treatment, once they were to go into hospice, cancer treat treatment for their cancer would be immediately halted. Um, and Medicare under hospice does not, therefore does not allow for any treatments. Um, now, not only do they not allow for treatments, there are, are many different hospice programs and different hospice programs have different policies. Many hospice programs will not offer intravenous fluids um, in order to keep a person hydrated once they are on hospice, essentially allowing the individual on hospice to die of dehydration. Similarly, not only would they not... Um, put a feeding tube into someone, which is um, somewhat of a procedure. Um, but if somebody already has a feeding tube, they would generally discontinue any artificial feeding um, during this time. Um, they also um, often, hospice um, will offer unlimited amounts of morphine to a patient 
Um, that usually um, in hospitals, generally they tend to give people painkiller buttons, um, but they but usually there's limits on them. Often hospices would not put limits on the painkiller buttons, allowing patients to essentially kill themselves from overdose. All of these things are very very problematic in halacha, in Jewish law. And so and now unfortunately there's a tendency in hospitals. And I've seen this from experience in our local hospitals here um, for the um, doctors, medical care um, people to push very sick patients, um, particularly people who come many times to the hospital or who are there for too long, to push them to go to switch to hospice. And what they often say, and I've heard, um, I've, her I've heard. Um, Healthcare managers say this. They'll often tell the patient to try hospice, which will make you much more comfortable since you're complaining a lot about pain. And then when you feel a little better, come back for more treatment. And they'll often tell them it's just a temporary thing. Go on hospice for a couple days till you're feeling better. And then you can come back and continue your treatment of whatever it is. Um, it's not true, um, that statement because the vast majority of patients in hospice do not survive. The vast majority do not survive. It is rare for someone to go to hospice for a few days, then after a few days of no fluids, or maybe if they are getting fluids, no um, food or limited food, and no other support, uh, limited other support, um, it is rare for them to come back. Um, and if they do, and there is actually a growing number of hospice patients that are leaving hospice, graduate, being discharged from hospice, it's almost always people who chose to go to hospice long before they should have and get kicked out of hospice after six months since Medicare and most insurances kick people out of hospice once they send, spend more than six months on hospice. So Jewish values do not necessarily forbid hospice. Um, they will not necessarily forbid hospice. Um, if um, provided certain conditions are met, hospice can be applied. Um, if um, hydration is continued, um, if um, oxygen is being offered, um, if there is a limit on the morphine, um, the Jewish law would allow for hospice and definitely would allow for palliative care where we um, also continue treatments. But it's important that regardless that we are, whatever we do, we are not stopping all efforts to keep the person alive. So while hospice is not necessarily forbidden, it is very, very problematic, particularly the way hospice is generally done today. Now, um, this is very concerning, um, and it's something that, as a community, um, we should, I believe, um, advocate to change, both for Medicare to change its policy on not allowing treatments under in hospice, um, for um, hospitals and hospice programs to change their policies, um, to allow um, better treatment within um, positive treatments or treatments to heal, to make the person better um, while in hospice. Um, now, even in hospitals or regular medical settings, such as nursing homes, it can be very difficult today to keep a Jewish values. Um, earlier, we mentioned that the Jewish community, the medical community, sorry, generally follows the principle of autonomy, 
which essentially would allow any patient to choose to do whatever they want. And so if a Jewish patient that follows Jewish values chooses to live, they would in theory have the choice to live. In reality, hospitals also in the medical community generally has um, believes in life as a value based on its experience and believes, and most medical practitioners believe um, innocently, because that's what they've always been taught, that life is only worth continuing if it is worth living, um, if it pays to continue. And so um, as a result, and also because there's perhaps limited resources, um, they make it very difficult to continue living for those who do wish to. Um, doctors and other healthcare practitioners um, often will not only offer medical advice and present the different possibilities, but often they'll suggest what is best for the patient. And their suggestion is often not just a medical suggestion. In other words, if you do this, you have your best chance of healing. But rather, given the prevailing value today of not preserving a life in pain or of limited function, they'll often tell the family that in your current state, I think it would be wrong to continue treatment. You're better off allowing them to die in peace or die in comfort. Now, that's not a medical statement. That's an ethical statement that Judaism would strongly disagree with. But often doctors who are presenting medical positions or healthcare managers or nurses or people that are managing healthcare will often make those statements that are ethical statements, presenting them as um, medical statements. And uh, while it's important to remember that we should always listen to medical experts for medical prognosis and ideal treatments, um, they should not be, we should not be listening to medical experts for ethical advice. As a Jew, for ethical advice, we should turn to our own Jewish ethics. Um, in addition, hospitals will often go so far, particularly because they have limited resources or because of payment structure from insurance, hospitals will go so far to discharge a patient or refuse to admit a patient that they see no value in treating. And this is partly under today's, today's laws. Um, there are limits to how many days a hospital can be paid for a specific patient, um, how many days a year. And so they will often refuse entry to a patient um, or discharge a patient, even if they still need the acute care that is only available in the hospital um, because they see no value in treatment. Um, a personal note, my own grandmother, may she live and be well, um, has been denied access to one of the prominent hospitals here in Los Angeles because she came too many times. And this was already a few years ago. They suggested that we take her to hospice care um, and um, let her die comfortably. Thankfully, she's still alive um, and enjoying her grandchildren. Unfortunately, we cannot visit her today um, due to our current crisis, but we still speak to her on Zoom. Um, and um, th that's just one personal story, but I, have, I know of many, many other people whom this has happened to. So it's important to remember that doctors Healthcare managers mean well, but they may not share our values. Usually, if you're insistent, sometimes it can be hard to be insistent, especially when speaking to a doctor or a medical expert. Usually, if you're insistent, insistent they will give you the treatment that you asked for. Um, thankfully, my grandmother has been to another hospital since when she's gotten sick and has gotten excellent treatment. Um, so, um, but... 
This has become today particularly a problem when fam today um, under COVID-19, when families no longer have access to their loved ones in hospitals or nursing homes. Uh, hospitals and nursing homes, for very good reason, have essentially been closed to all visitors, including family. Um, and that's because there's been, unfortunately, a, uh, much of the spread of COVID-19 has been within hospitals and nursing homes, um, and they don't want to take any risk, un unnecessary risk whatsoever. Um, but as a result, um, many well-meaning doctors, healthcare providers are choosing not to respond to certain needs of patients that they feel are for the patient's benefit. Um, and things that if the patient could better express themselves um, or for someone that would sit and actually listen to what the patient says and they may have trouble expressing themselves at the moment um, or the family um, often are not able to intercede um, and tell the doctors what they should be doing while most doctors are giving regular updates to um, those that are responsible for the patient's care um, often it's not it's not, it's not always often enough, and that may be because the medical care um, are um, stressed these days and a lot go, there may be a lot going on in the hospitals. Um, but unfortunately, um, there appears to be um, a case where a lot of people are not getting um, the treatment perhaps that they could be getting or should be getting. Um, the New York Times has reported that current death rates are 50% higher than normal in the United States. And which is much, much higher, the additional death rates currently are much higher than the reported number of people that have died from COVID-19 in this country. And now this may be, the New York Times suggests that this may be because many people are dying from COVID-19 but are not tested and so therefore not recorded as having died from COVID-19. And you may have seen that, that the numbers may be much higher than reported. But, and while that's probably true to some extent, I believe there may be another factor that people in ICUs, in hospitals in general, in nursing homes are dying due to other comp medical complications mm -hmm. because their family are not there to advocate for them. Um, it may also be that people have uh, in these places, in these scenarios, who are no longer seeing family, particularly those that are not able to pick up a iPad and um, Zoom with their family um, or speak to their fam FaceTime with their family and um, the nurses are too busy to help them to do so. Uh, many of them have perhaps may have lost the will to live um, or have lost the drive to keep going. Um, so it's important for family today to regularly call, ask for updates to ensure they are getting proper treatment and to ensure that they're getting the treatment that Torah values would expect of us. Now today, there has been a movement to encourage people to make advanced directives, such as do not intubate, do not resuscitate, and other more detailed advanced directives. Many hospitals and um, healthcare providers offer um, forms that one can fill out about what the hospital should do in such a situation. Uh, in different situations that may arise in their life, in their end-of-life care. Um, now, in general, it's probably not best advised to use advanced directives that give these um, very general instructives, do not intubate, do not, um, do not intubate, do not resuscitate, because there may be um, 
there may be scenarios that are unpredictable where you would take a different approach. In other words, if it was just intubation for a few days, then afterwards you would heal and go back to exactly the way you were before. Would you still say do not intubate? Um, it's very hard to know in advance all the possible scenarios and it's very hard to really be able to give exact instructions of um, advanced scenarios. Um, this is particularly true if you want to follow Jewish values and halacha, which as we mentioned are extremely complex um, given the different, that no two situations are alike um, and the balance between um, ensuring uh, that uh, 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 keeping people alive um, keeping life going at almost all costs, while the other, on the other hand, not causing unnecessarily pain, unnecessary pain to terminally ill patients, and balancing that can be somewhat complicated. And therefore, I suggest that a better approach would be to give someone whom you trust the power of attorney, where either a loved one, a spouse, a child, um, to give them the power of attorney to make decisions for you um, in such a scenario. And you can discuss with those people what your preferred um, approach to particular situations may be, and then they can judge in different situations whether that's what you meant or not. However, in halach, in Jewish law, we already mentioned that personal autonomy is not the primary factor, is only a secondary factor, and therefore we, I would encourage you to... Um, Create a power of attorney in an advanced directive. Give someone the power to make all decisions for you, but to st both tell that individual and stipulate in the document that everything should be done in accordance with Jewish law in consultation with a rabbi. Um, the RCC, the Rabbinical Council of California, on their website, rccvad.org, has a document um, that is legal in California, under California law that you can download to fill out an advanced directive that will give someone power of attorney to make those decisions for you that stipulates that it should all be done in accordance with Jewish values. So I would encourage everybody to write what's um, called a living will or um, give someone power of attorney for their medical needs, end-of-life medical needs. And while I mention it, I just want to mention two other very important points in planning for these things. Firstly, although it's somewhat morbid to plan for when we're going to be sick and dying, it's still very important to do so. Um, we have a Jewish tradition that buying a plot, burial plot in advance, um, will guarantee you a long life. Um, and um, it definitely um, takes away a lot of later hassle. And though difficult, we should, it is definitely something that we should think about when we're young, when we're healthy. Um, so I would encourage you to write a living will to give someone power of attorney and um, to write it in such a way where you make it clear that you want the individual to follow Jewish values and consult with a halachic expert who can help them make those decisions according to Jewish values. But I want to also mention two other important planning details while speaking about planning in advance. Um, it's very important to connect whoever does have, and you usually should appoint more than one person because you don't know who will be around then, um, whoever does have power of attorney, whether spouse, children, it's very important to connect them with your rabbi as well. I was once called by a local hospital who found our number on Google searching for a rabbi. And when I came, somebody was dying in the hospital. I went to the hospital and I found it was a member of the community 
who we knew very well, and I think some of you know very well. And um, what had happened was their family um, did not know who the individual's rabbi was, or they did know and they didn't know to call them or how to get hold of us. And so they asked the doctor to find any rabbi, and the hospital luckily found us um, anyway. Um, but there's no reason to be in that situation to start with. Um, and um, I've also unfortunately found out about members of our community um, who had died long after their funeral, um, and that's simply because nobody, there was no one to contact us. So I would encourage everybody to ensure that whoever is making decisions for you, um, end-of-life decisions, know who your rabbi is and know how to get hold of them um, when necessary. Um, I would also encourage you to give your rabbi, whoever that may be, your um, spouse, your children, usually don't have your spouse's number, but your children's number, or whoever that um, person who will have that power, to give them that contact so that the rabbi can call in necessary. Sometimes the next of kin is too paralyzed to know what to do in the situation. And so um, if somebody in the community disappears for a little while, sometimes we want to call to find out what happened. They're not answering their phone and we don't know the numbers to their children or their other fam, their siblings or other family to be able to call to find out what happened to them. So um, I would encourage you to give whether us or whoever your rabbi may be, to give them the, the numbers to whoever your relatives may be in such, who would be making decisions in such a situation so that if need be, we can, if we suspect there may be something to be concerned about, we can reach out to them. I'd also encourage you, and I've mentioned this many times in classes before, but I'm going to mention this again because it's so important. I encourage you to make burial arrangements in advance um, firstly, to ensure that it will be done in accordance with Jewish traditions. And also, you do not want your children to worry about it. It is extremely difficult to have to deal with burial arrangements um, under pressure, um, with, uh, under a lot of pressure, with little time, and with a lot of people who are perhaps looking to take advantage. Um, I strongly encourage you to make all burial arrangements in advance. Um, I would encourage you, as I have in the past, to call the Hevra Kadisha. The Hevra Kadisha is a free burial society um, or a nonprofit that essentially only charges for the real costs. Um, they will do everything in accordance with halacha. You can Google their number or message me. I could give you their number. They will take care of everything. Um, they can take care of both the mortuary details as well as the plot itself. And I encourage you to reach out to them. So in conclusion, I think this teaches us the importance of a life, how important a life is. And it's important to remember we will not break Yom Kippur for all the money in the world. If somebody was going to give you all the money in the world, we still would not desecrate Yom Kippur, eat on Yom Kippur, or desecrate Yom Kippur for all the money in the world. There were famous bowl players who refused to play bowl on Yom Kippur, even when it was the World Series. Um, and many Jews have taken great sacrifice not to transgress Yom Kippur. Yet, we would break Yom Kippur, um, we would desecrate Yom Kippur to save a life. And this is not only for someone who is young and has many years ahead of them, but even for someone who is dying, just to extend their life a little bit, we will do anything we can to save their life. 
So therefore, if we would not break, desecrate Yom Kippur for all the money in the world, but we would desecrate Yom Kippur to save a life, even short term, saving a life even short term is worth more than all the money in the world. Life is not just worth the experience of life. Life is of intrinsic value. The, a life itself is a world. We don't know why God sometimes makes people live in pain or live with limited functionality. But we believe that every life, every person has a godly soul, has a soul of life inside them. That soul is a part of God. And their life, as long as their soul is in their body, that is a beautiful, powerful thing. And we should do everything we can to preserve that life. But it also teaches us about while we're alive, how we live life. Life is not just about our experience in life. The most important value, the most important part of life is fulfilling our mission on earth. Doing, making an impact, doing something of value. We shouldn't be living for our bucket list. You shouldn't have a list of things you need to do before you die. And then once you do them, no longer have any need to live. You shouldn't be living for um, experiences. We rather should be living because God gave us life in order to serve a purpose, in order to fulfill a mission, in order to make an impact on this earth. And we must therefore do everything we can to try to make an impact, to make an impact on this earth. And rather than focusing on experiences, our life should be focused on what we can do to make a difference, how we can make an impact.